Hi, my name's Sana. I was at my friend's house, uh, she's a white friend, and we were talking about her experience going to uni. And she said walking into her lectures, she saw all these Asians in these classes, like so many Asians. And she said like walking into a room full of that many Asians and majority Asians made her feel really uncomfortable. And she looked at me and she was sort of like, is that how like you guys feel when you walk into a room full of white people? Do you like, they make you feel uncomfortable? Cause they definitely made me feel uncomfortable. And I was just so shocked for a moment that like, I just couldn't respond to her on the day. And I went home and thought about it and I was like, I don't view them as like a group of people that is like hostile and dangerous and other. I just view them as a bunch of individuals. And thanks to Sana, who sent us that voice memo after we put out a call on Twitter for your stories of awkward conversations about race. Been there. Hey, it's Beverly. This is It's Not a Race. And white people, we didn't forget about you. Yes, in this episode, we're talking all about whiteness. So, how are you feeling when I say we're going to devote this entire episode to whiteness? Are you all, hell yes, it's about time? Or are you feeling a little squirmy? But here's the thing. We can't have a real conversation about race and racism without talking about whiteness. If you're going to let us mix some metaphors over here, it's the white elephant in the room. And we've got to address it. But I'm really, really pleased that you guys are here in person because this is a really important week. It's an important lecture because we get to hear... So, Doctor, can you please explain? Okay. There's this word white that's associated with certain kinds of bodies. Where does it come from? As the idea of race developed into a hierarchy, the idea of whiteness developed. And it develops as an idea of a racial category that is at the apex of the racial hierarchy. To understand where whiteness originated is to understand how whiteness became invented simultaneously with the concept of race. They happen at the same time. That's Odette Collada. She's an academic at Melbourne University, and she teaches a class on racial literacy which focuses on indigeneity and whiteness. For example, in our first week, uh, we talk about the fact that race is not biological. Uh, it was invented. Now, the fact that that is news for students, for some of the students at a first-year university level, when that has been known, um, has been proven by science for many decades, is the issue itself. On a personal level, do any mm. of the students, and I'm thinking the ones who are white in this question, do they feel confronted or uncomfortable? Yes, that's right. They, it's seen something that they haven't noticed before. Uh, one of the students said, as we were walking from the last class, and it's often in those sort of in-between times when they're getting to talk to me one-on-one, um, that they can't believe they never noticed that certain spaces or certain even in movies are all white. They have just not thought about it. And so, yes, that is confronting because they're surprised that something so that becomes so obvious was something they never even noticed before. And there's a name on the reading list for this course that recurs over and over again. Hey, can you hear me, Beverly? Oh, Robin! Hi! It's Robin D'Angelo. 
an American academic and race relations consultant. So we tracked her down. Finally, after all the emails. It's yes, nice to been, connect voice to voice. How are you've you? You've been so tenacious. Thank you. Oh, I'm, no. I'm fine. So Robin D'Angelo is white. And she's also literally an expert on white people. So I'm Robin D'Angelo. I have a doctorate in uh, white racial identity and whiteness studies. She is a doctor of whiteness. Dr. Whiteness! I'm a former professor of education, and I currently uh, write, speak, train, and consult on issues of racial equity with a particular focus on what it means to be white in a society that proclaims it doesn't really mean anything, and yet is profoundly separate and unequal by race. Robin D'Angelo is known for coining the term white fragility. What does she mean by that? Well, white fragility, I think anyone who's tried to talk to white people about racism will have seen some very predictable patterns. I think I just put language to it, and I think it's resonated because uh, it is so recognizable. But I think about it as the capacity to bear any stress related to our racial positions and our racial identities. So you challenge me, you suggest that being white has any meaning, that it's relevant, that you could somehow know anything about me because I'm white. Uh, You question uh, that I have not actually earned everything I have, uh, but that being white has allowed my work to pay off. All of those things uh, push me way out of my comfort zone, because part of being white is to live in a very insular uh, environment, a very comfortable racial environment in which you're rarely ever the only one. You're, You're not really seen as having a race, right? I mean, somebody has race, but really not not you, not not a uh, you as a white person, and so I haven't really had to. I'll speak. I'll speak for myself now. I haven't had to build the capacity to really endure that discomfort and that stress to push through the the taboos about talking about race or acknowledging that race is significant, and so I don't respond very well. I'm curious. Have you ever tried to talk to a white person about race? Sometimes it doesn't go well. I've never met a white person without an opinion on racism. I'm sure every white person listening to this show has an opinion, and I'm sure they're very uh, emotional and strongly held. But I'm very confident to say if you are white and you have not devoted years of sustained study, struggle, and focus on this topic, and you don't have ongoing, authentic relationships with people of color, I don't mean one or two, or you have a friend at work you go to lunch with on occasion, but I mean deep relationships, Uh, your opinions are necessarily limited because nothing in dominant society gives us the information we need to have the complex, nuanced understanding necessarily for arguably the most complex, nuanced social dilemma since... um, since the beginning of at least uh, these countries, which are basically colonies, right? Uh, You just can't have an informed opinion. You can literally get through graduate school without ever discussing racism. And most white people live in racial segregation. I think you're probably making a few listeners uncomfortable right now. Oh, good. Um, I'm glad you brought that up because honestly, we're not going to get there from a place of comfort. Racism is not comfortable. We have got to get uncomfortable. The, these narratives of, I was taught to treat everyone the same, which, by the way, is not humanly possible. 
you were not. No one was taught to treat everyone the same because you can't be taught to do that. You can be told to do that. Right. I can lecture you for hours on how, how it isn't nice to judge people. And of course, we all know that we judge. It's a kind of leaning into that discomfort and using it not as a way out, which which most people. Oh, there you go. Any listener who's tuning out right now uh, is is experiencing white, fr- white fragility. Right. I can't handle having uh, the way I see things challenged. When you add, I'm going to use a blunt word, ignorance, which we, again, our society keeps us ignorant and it does serve us to be ignorant. When you add that with arrogance, right, all our teachers are white, all our heroes and heroines, all our leaders, ignorance and arrogance makes us really difficult. And we're hard on people of color, even when we don't intend to be. So my hope is, yes, you'll be uncomfortable and you'll actually be excited about that because it means I'm helping to reveal the foundation of meaning that you're drawing from that's causing you to feel uncomfortable. Are you still there? I hope you are. Here, let's put on a little music. Does that help? Okay, come on back, Robin D'Angelo. I often ask a room full of people I'm in front of, have you ever noticed any white defensiveness on the topic of racism? And everybody laughs because white folks tend to be very defensive, again, about the suggestion that our race has any meaning. And we tend to respond in ways that will stop that challenge, right, that will get us back into our comfort zone or what I think of as our racial equilibrium. And so we'll we'll um, argue, uh, we'll we'll cry, we'll get hurt feelings, we'll withdraw, we'll claim we've been attacked. We'll do really whatever we need to do to get you to stop challenging us and challenging our positions. It's very effective. It's not fragile in the sense of the impact that those responses have uh, on people of color, but it's fragile in the sense of the inability to bear the discomfort and the need to lash back in ways that will uh, stop the challenge. So what are some triggers then that you've witnessed in your work? There are some key ideologies that actually function uh, really well for white people. So individualism, you know, that we're all unique, special individuals uh, is a fairly cherished ideology, but it's really only granted to white people. Uh, I am rarely ever identified by my race. I'm not the uh, black woman or the black teacher or the Maori educator or professor. I'm just a professor. I'm just a teacher. Uh, I'm just Robin. So because it's not granted to everyone, it actually becomes a privilege and one that we become uh, entitled to, right? We feel entitled to be seen and responded to as if we're unique individuals. So suggesting that race has meaning, uh, that my race has um, meaning for my life and my worldview and my perspective and my responses is to fundamentally challenge this concept of individualism, to suggest that uh, I have not only uh, earned what I have through hard work, but hard work and uh, white privilege is to challenge uh, another cherished ideology, which is meritocracy, uh, to talk openly and directly about race and racism. I mean, we talk 
uh, coded in coded ways um, all the time about race and racism. For example, good neighborhoods and good schools is usually code for white. But to talk directly about those things uh, also is a challenge or a trigger uh, to suggest that we are not actually objective, but that we see the world through a particular lens. It's a biased lens. In that sense, you know, all humans are biased. There's no actual human objectivity. But we have set the world up to grant objectivity to white people. And then, you know, people of color really just see race everywhere. Those types of things will tend to push us out of our comfort zones. I think an, another key one is to suggest that I have said or done anything racially problematic, is to suggest that I am racist or have some racism, uh, is fundamentally to question my very moral character. Robin, I'm curious, when did you realize or start to think about your own whiteness? You know, I mean, part of being white is that I could be a full adult, a parent, and have a college education and never in my life have my racial worldview challenged. I actually couldn't tell you I even had a racial worldview, right? Uh, and then I applied for a position as a diversity trainer. I actually thought that I was qualified because I was an open-minded, progressive person. Um, and I started working with a significant number of people of color, and they began to challenge uh, the way I saw the world. And uh, I was like a fish being taken out of water. Not only did I, did I not understand I had a racial experience or worldview, but never had anybody actually questioned it. And that, that set me on this kind of lifelong journey. And then the next step was uh, going into the workplace, primarily white workplaces, and trying to talk about racial inequality with a majority white employee population. And the incredible fragility, the inability to for white people to really hold the conversation without getting defensive and hurt and all of those things, years and years of sustained, authentic, accountable relationships with people of color and trying to talk to white, other white people about racism, just put all the pieces of that puzzle together. And because we can so easily live our lives avoiding those things, it just protects our very, very limited worldview. And I've got to, to address right now the good-bad binary. Uh, I think the most brilliant adaptation of racism post-civil rights is, is this idea that you're either racist or you're not. If you're racist, uh, you're bad. And if you're not racist, you're good. If you're against racism, you're good, right? Racists are mean-spirited people who can't tolerate people of color, um, and they know it, right? That's the definition. And it, at least the mainstream definition. And if you're coming from that definition, yes, the things I am saying are going to upset you and you're going to shut down and we're not going to move forward. A racism is a system that is infused across actually the world at this point. Uh, and it's an inevitable a part of being socialized into the water of our culture. You know, it's really on white people in the Australian context to say, well, how does it manifest here? Not does it or doesn't it. How does it? Because it does. So 
Here's a question about teaching whiteness as a white woman. Mm-hmm. How do you think your whiteness affects the way you are received with your message of whiteness in workplaces? Yeah. Well, and here's another um, challenge. Our barrier is that most people don't understand the power of implicit bias. So implicit bias is well documented. It's empirical. We all have it, and the majority uh, of it is unconscious, right? So we are discriminating, and we're responding, and then we're discriminating based on bias that we don't even know we have. Uh, And then when you back a group's collective bias with legal authority and institutional control, it's transformed into the fabric and foundation of the society. Uh, So on one level, the very fact that I'm white, actually, because the bias is going to go in my favor, it's it's going to give me the benefit of the doubt. Other white people are more likely to see me as unbiased on the topic of race than they will see a person of color. A person of color actually would probably not be able to say even half of what I've said. As you pointed out, it doesn't mean people aren't uh, uncomfortable by what I said, but I can get much further than most people of color because I'm seen as objective or more objective. Second, I'm an insider, and there's a way in which I understand it and can name it that's really undeniable. It's a kind of look, I know and you know, and this is how it is for us. Now, there's a catch-22 there. Because as I stand there, you know, uh, exposing it, I am also reinforcing the centrality of the white voice. There I am with expertise on whiteness. Um, There I am being listened to when people of color are not. Um, And I don't see a way out of that dilemma. Uh, It's a both end. I've come to terms with it by thinking that to be white and not to use that voice and that position to challenge racism is to really be white. <laughs> um, to break with whiteness and white solidarity. And white solidarity is the unspoken agreement amongst whites that will keep each other comfortable around our racism. And, you know, I don't want you to feel bad. So even though I'm cringing over what you just said, I, I won't say anything, right? So to break with it by being honest by naming and admitting things uh, that white people will rarely ever name or admit to, by helping other white people surface that deeply embedded unconscious uh, implicit bias, I'm actually decentering whiteness, right? Because one of the ways it it remains centered is by being unnamed and unmarked, right? It's, It's the backdrop uh, that we never really mention. And when we talk about race, we study others, on the other side of it, do you ever get challenged from people of color you know, questioning, why are you the authority on the race that I live? Certainly. Well, well, the first thing is that I don't uh, speak to their experience, right? Um, I'm speaking to majority culture. And so that, you know, I don't get up there and say, this is what it is like for people of color. Uh, most children understand by age three that it's better to be white, no child misses that message. It's well, it's just well researched, right? And a lot of white people respond with just, oh, how, how sad, how tragic. And I want to move them over to, and what messages did it give you about yourself? How can we not avoid having internalized a message of superiority 
as these little children are internalizing a message of inferiority. And then how do we bring that to the table when we try to talk to each other across these differences? So for people of color, uh, to be honest, the the majority of people of color are incredibly grateful. I mean, I, I wouldn't continue to do what I do if that wasn't the most consistent feedback I got. Um, it takes the weight off their shoulders. It validates their experience. It affirms their experience. Uh, for, you know, just that period of time, they didn't have to try try to say it. Sometimes there's a tendency not to use the word white. <laughs> People say anglo or some variation of that, Anglo-Saxon, Anglo-Irish. I mean, what do you make of that choice? I think that um, the question that guides me, because it's so hard to sort out true, false, nature, nurture, right? These are perennial questions. Uh, For example, a lot of people like to say, well, somebody, you know, somebody has to be on top. Domination is human nature. Well, that's really hard to separate out, right? nature or nurture. But so the question I ask is, who does it serve? Who does this narrative that it's human nature to dominate serve? Those who are being dominated or those who are doing the domination? I've actually never heard anybody being dominated say, hey, it's just human nature. Somebody's got to stand on me. Might as well be you. That's the narrative of of the oppressor, quite frankly, right? Um, and wanting to slide away from naming the reality that racism's real, it exists, and under that construct, I am white, and I need to embrace what it means. I, I don't walk down the street and people say, oh, there's an uh, Anglo-Italian. They don't see my ethnicity. They respond to my race. And that is what we have to grapple with. And I, I think it's just another form of white fragility. Keep me as comfortable as possible and protect my position. Because to, to challenge that is to, is to question my very identity. Um, and it serves me not to do that in a society that's unequal and that I benefit from that inequality. Dr. Robin D'Angelo. Find her online at robindangelo.com. You can find me by tweeting at Beverly Wang or using the hashtag NotARace. Or send your messages or voice memos to notarace at abc.net.au, just like Pobbs did. Hey, Beverly and the team. This is Pobbs. I'm calling from Melbourne, Victoria. Just want to say a huge thank you for your podcast uh, and for initiating what's a really overdue discussion in this country. Your anecdote in that last episode about working in the bookshop uh, as a student, that really hit a nerve because... I had to deal with similar instances myself as a university student, and uh, it's just a really complex issue. Thank you so much, Pops. Here's how you record a voice memo for It's Not a Race. Find the preloaded recorder app on a smartphone, hit record, say what's on your mind, and email the file to notarace at abc.net.au. And one more thing. I know I'm totally ripping off Mike and Timothy from the real thing when I say this. What? Did you know that? That's... Okay, okay, Mike and Timothy. You did it first, okay? I gave you credit. If you write a review for It's Not a Race and send us a screen cap, we'll send you an It's Not a Race sticker. Oh, really? Oh, that's... That's not fair. No. Can we have one? Please. And... 
time for the credits. Hello. Ooh. Ooh. Hey. Leona Hamid produced. Check, check, one, two. Matthew Crawford did the sound design. Martin Prouter, me. I did the, the, uh, the, the music. And... Beverly Wang did, well, everything else. Minik gets everything. Minik always gets on the side, like, what she wants. It's not my skin colour either. So why should I have this stupid flesh-coloured bra?